Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 10. Be reading verses 1 through 16. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word that Yahweh speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down, worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak, for they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Yahweh. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmiths. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are the work of skilled men. But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes. And the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and He brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. The time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. For he is, uh, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is His name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of the absurd sin of our idolatry, of worshiping creation rather than the creator 
Praise be to you that you've spoken to your redeemed people. Who you've taken as your inheritance. And Father, because of your word, because of your redemption, may we become more distinct now. As you wash your bride with the water of your word, may we become more distinct now from this idolatrous, broken world. Disciple us in your truth, purging the kind of learning we've taken from the nations. And magnify your great name in us now. In the name of Jesus I pray, amen. Know that not only many of you are familiar with, but many of you are fans of the Babylon Bee. For those among you who are not... Here's the buzz straight from their website as to what they're about. The Babylon Bee is the world's best satire site, totally inerrant in all its truth claims. We write satire about Christian stuff, political stuff, and everyday life. The Babylon Bee was created ex nihilo on the eighth day of creation week, exactly 6,000 years ago. We have been the premier news source through every major world event from the Tower of Babel and the Exodus to the Reformation and the War of 1812. We focus on just the facts, leaving spin and bias to other news sites like CNN and Fox News. Unlike other satire sites, everything we post is 100% verified by Snopes.com. For those unaware, Snopes has fact-checked the Babylon Bee, despite this self-description. Snopes was particularly zealous for the public to know that this article was demonstrably false. Georgia lawmaker claims Chick-fil-A employee told her to go back to her country. Later clarifies he actually said, my pleasure. <laughs> they wanted you to know that that wasn't true. I rehearse this simply to point out that many today don't know how to read satire. There are many within the church that think Christians should have absolutely nothing to do with writing satire. It's a dirty bomb, not to be used in a just war. As to those, they clearly don't recall Elijah and the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, wherein he told them, Cry aloud! He is a god. Either he is musing, or perhaps he's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Concerning the use of satire today, Douglas Wilson has some penetrating insight when he writes, When Jesus looked on the rich young ruler and loved him, it's very easy for us to say that we should be loving as he was. When preachers make such applications, no one thinks anything of it. But when Jesus looked on the old rich rulers and insulted them, why do we tend to assume that that is never, ever to be imitated? It is conceivable that such a division is defensible, but why does it never have to be defended? 
Some might say and do say that we're not Jesus. And so we do not have the wisdom to insult properly. Fine. So why then do we have the wisdom to love properly? Can't we screw that up too? Perhaps the reason we cannot read and the reason why we don't like, don't want to write satire, perhaps the reason is the same. I don't think it's that we're more loving, save that we love our idols too. And we can't bear to see them shamed. Well, here, echoing the spirit of Elijah, and in the same Expressions used again and again in Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 18 through 20, Isaiah 41, 7, Isaiah 44, 9 through 20, Isaiah 46, 5 through 7. Here we have a satire concerning the idols and idolatry. Our text presents four contrasts between the idols and Yahweh. The idols are put here, looked at, observed. And then for comedic effect, Yahweh is placed alongside them. More than the proud bantam rooster looks ridiculous when set beside the regal bald eagle do the cockamamie idols of the pagans appear whenever placed alongside Yahweh who bore His people on eagle's wings. So in verses 1 through 7, we'll see that the idols are not to be feared. Yahweh is. Verses 8 through 10, we see the dead wood idols compared to the living God. Verses 11 through 13, the maid versus the maker. And finally, in verses 11 through 13, the worthless idols compared to Yahweh who is the immeasurable portion of of his people. The satire is introduced as a word that Yahweh speaks to his people. So first, just notice this. Whenever Yahweh writes satire, he doesn't use a pen name. He isn't ashamed of it. But this introduction, I think, is, is really... Don't take it for granted. It's striking in this sense. It, it sets us up for the contrast. Yahweh and the idols are sure to be contrasted, but because Yahweh speaks and He's spoken to His people, there should be a contrast between them and the nations. It's striking, isn't it, that He refers to them as Israel? It's clear by all the surrounding context. He's dealing with Judah throughout this book, but it's striking whenever He speaks to Israel as Israel, whenever He uses that, it's always really striking in the book of Jeremiah. And here, I think the idea is to recall the covenant that he made with his people. We'll see that come full circle by the time we come to the conclusion of this satirical piece. Israel's told not to be dismayed at the signs of the heavens. She's not to be dismayed because she would have learned the ways of the nations. If she learns the ways of the nations, she'll be dismayed. So not being dismayed means not learning their ways. But Israel was learning. Judah was learning. You remember in 718, she was rebuked by Yahweh for worshiping the queen of heaven, which was Ashtoreth, the Mesopotamian goddess associated with Venus. And then the next chapter, chapter 8, we see that she's worshiping the sun and the moon and the host of heavens. She's learning their ways. 
And we too are still learning the ways of the nations. And the result always for learning these ways, then as now, the result is fear. If you are discipled by the nations, if you are discipled by this world, the result will be fear. You remember Paul tells us that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the redeemed are not to fall back into fear. That was their previous life outside of Christ. Now they enjoy the security that comes in being a son. There's security and peace there. So you're not to fall back into fear. If you learn the ways of the, na- of the nations, if you continue in the way of the world that you were born into in Adam, the result will always be fear. If you read the horoscopes, if you are discipled in their ways, you will fear. If you learn uh, to idolize politics from the nations, you will fear the next election. You will fear the opposing party. If you learn ecology... From the schools of this world, you will fear climate change. And don't think that the secularizing of these gods and goddesses changes the nature of worship any, because now we're being called to, in the worship of Mother Earth, sacrifice the cows, because their odor is not pleasing to her. Their their living odor isn't pleasing to her. So kill them all, so that Mother Earth might live and be happy. If you're taught to worship beauty... In the temple of Hollywood, you will fear age. And you will offer up your sacrifices to this goddess to preserve you. If you learn, you will fear. If you're discipled by this world, you will be enslaved to fear. Consider the exhibit of the evening news. What do they market? Fear. The reason we're not to learn the ways of the nations, being dismayed at what they are dismayed at, is because their customs, verse 3, are vanity. And the vanity of their ways is made plain simply by pointing. A tree from the forest is cut down. Worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. A tree is worked on by a craftsman, covered with gold, and then fastened down so that it can't move. And that thing, that created thing, is worshipped. If you have to make your God, it's not much of a God. Whenever you do make your own God, what you're really doing is worshiping yourself. You're crafting a little God in your little image. You have a God that you're the God of. Our little gods then have to be fastened so that they can't move. And the irony is that they have to be fastened so that they can't move because they cannot move. They're fastened so that they cannot move. And they cannot move. They have to be carried. They can't walk. 
So they have to be nailed down so that they won't move because they can't move. So your idols can fall, but they can't pick themselves up. They are dead scarecrows. You have to prop them up, nail them down, and then use your imagination for them to seem lifelike and cause fear. The word that you have in verse 4 for move means totter. The gods of our hands are really wobbly. So they have to be nailed down. They fall easily. You remember whenever the Philistines took the ark of Yahweh and they brought it into the house of Dagon and they wake up the next morning and there Dagon is face down before the ark. And so they have to prop him back up. And they come in the next morning and Dagon has been decapitated and his hands are severed. And so what do they do? More nails! Get the ark out of here because it's really hard on Dagon. And likewise we too. Whenever we see the folly of our idols, we don't repent, we don't turn from them. We try to get rid of Yahweh as much as we can and we call for more nails. Nail it down. Make it secure. All our idols are scarecrows. They are a nothing fashioned by the hands of man to scare without any reason. Verse 5. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Don't be scared of the scarecrows of this world because substituting... Wood for straw doesn't make them any more substantial. Plating them with gold does not make them worthy. And jettisoning the ancient myths that surround them doesn't make them less ridiculous. They're not to be feared. They are to be mocked. There's nothing in them to do evil or good, verse 5. They are impotent to bless or to curse. Whatever you fear reveals your God. Pause. Reflect. Whatever you fear reveals your God and then realize God is God over that. He is Yahweh. He gives. He takes away. Whatever it is you fear reveals your God and then realize your God is God over that. He's the one who either gives it or takes it away. You remember Jesus, whenever he was instructing his disciples concerning the persecution they could expect for following him, tells them, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, Matthew 10. Fight fear with fear. Look to Yahweh. Because, verse 6, there is none like Him. He is great, and His name is great. The Scriptures are replete with texts telling us that God is acting to make a name for Himself. The 
mighty acts of God in creation and redemption are nothing more than God writing the most massive dictionary ever that only contains a single entry. He is defining His name. He told Pharaoh that he raised him up so that he might show his power for the purpose of his name being proclaimed in the earth. Exodus 9. David prayed, Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name? Doing great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. A nation. Uh, uh, a nation driving out before them a nation. Uh, making, let me start over. Doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed from yourself from Egypt. A nation and its gods. When Moses asked to see God's glory, he replied, Yahweh replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's showing His glory was the proclaiming of His name. So in light of God's great name, this revelation of Himself in redeeming people by judgment, in light of His great name, Jeremiah asked, Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Fear is due to Him because there's none like Him. He alone is God. The problem is not that we fear too much. The problem is that we fear absurdly. We fear the flu. Mosquitoes. Bills coming due. Others' opinion of us. Looking foolish. Our team losing. Thieves breaking in. We fear these things. And we are weak sinners before an omnipotent, holy God. Our fears are radically misplaced. We're like the builder in Pompeii, worried about his next building project, while Vesuvius is spewing ash. We should not follow the nations in their fear. We should rest confident knowing they will follow us in ours. All nations shall tremble before He who is their King, whether or not they acknowledge Him now. Because of what Jesus has done in the redemption of sinners, we're told, Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. Saints, do not learn the ways of the nations. Fear Yahweh, taking up the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, singing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Revelation 15. So we come to the next contrast in verses 8 through 10. We need to ask ourselves who they are. They are both stupid and foolish. The nearest antecedent, the one you'd expect it to refer to, would be the wise ones of the nations. In verse 7, they are both stupid and foolish. But then the next line comes, the instruction of idols is but wood. And so the question now is, They who are stupid and foolish, does the line, the instruction of idols is but wood, tell you why the wise men are stupid and foolish? Because they hear the instruction of idols. Or does this line tell you who is stupid and foolish? The idols who are giving this instruction. So if you look before verse 8, you think it's the wise men. If you look after verse 8, and you read, they are the work of craftsmen, their clothing is violet and purple, they are the work of skilled men... Makes you think perhaps it's the idols. What is the answer? Which way does this go? I think the, uh, the stupidity is mutual. The answer is both. There's a kind of vagueness here that you're drawn into purposefully. The craftsmen make an idol in their image. They are stupid and foolish. They make a stupid and foolish image. And then the worshipers who worship that image become like what they worship. Stupid and foolish. And then notice that just just today as it was then, idolatry is an expensive hobby. Imported silver and gold. This royal clothing, this expensive cloth covers them. Purple. Violet. The nations are playing a very expensive game of dress-up. Very expensive dolls, very expensive clothes. And this is all foolish because their instruction is wood. I think the idea is, this is wood that's been cut down, it's dead. Their instruction is nothing, it's non-existence, it's dead in contrast to the true and living and everlasting king, verse 10. Our God lives, He lives forever, and He's not decrepit for all the living. When He revealed His name, it was built upon His statement, I am who I am. He's not the I was, He's not the I will be. He is eternally the I am, He's immutable, He's unchanging, always He is God, always He is King. Because the, counsel, the idols are dead, their counsel is wood, whereas the wrath of Yahweh, the living God, causes the earth to quake. And at, at that wrath, the nations crumble. They can't endure His indignation. 
Saints, let's not fool ourselves. We worship dead things still. The cult of the dead is very much alive today. Aries would be pleased. We worship dead, rotting, corruptible, perishing things. Things that we have to dress up. Things that we have to play pretend with for them to seem alive. But our God, Yahweh, has a saity that is of Himselfness. He is the I Am. He, he is independent. Everything else is dependent. He is everlasting, not by virtue of any bestowal of one greater than Himself, but simply because of He Himself, who He is. He's everlasting. He's eternal. Aseity is a rarely used word because it's a rarely encountered thing. Only one possesses it. Yahweh, the true God, the living God, the everlasting King. And the next contrast we have naturally flows from this. He's the living God. He's the true God. But the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. The gods who didn't make but were made will be unmade by the maker. Verse 11 is really peculiar. In fact, it's the most peculiar verse in the chapter in, in one sense. It's the most peculiar verse in the whole book from one perspective. Because whenever you begin to look at this in the original language, it's the only verse that's not in Hebrew in the whole book. It's in Aramaic. Because that's so, many scholars have speculated that it doesn't have any place in the original text. It was inserted later. I think there are a couple very substantial reasons why that's just foolish. One is you mess up the timing of this machine if you rip that out. You've got idols, Yahweh, idols, Yahweh, idols, Yahweh. And then you would just go idols, Yahweh, Yahweh, idols, Yahweh. It, it messes up the, the timing, the rhythm, the pattern. But then further, this same verse is in the Septuagint. That's that old Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's present there. It's also present in the Qumran text, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those versions of Jeremiah, it's contained therein. Then the question is, why is this verse in Aramaic? And it's not expounded on, so we can't say with any rock-solid certainty. But as you read this, doesn't it have a kind of proverbial feel to it? And because Aramaic is the trade language, it's a, it's a language that would be known wide and far, used for trade, it means that this kind of proverbial statement, I think it was probably already somewhat proverbial, and then God adapts it, fine-tunes it to condemn the idols, that then it, it's, it really becomes proverbial. And part of that is seen in this. The word that you have for make and perish in Aramaic are nearly identical. There's a wordplay here that could not have been accomplished in Hebrew. It was possible in Aramaic. And all this serves to make this statement proverbial and easily disseminated among all the nations and their idolatry that's being rebuked here. The contrast, in contrast, excuse me, to the made 
that did not make but will be unmade by the maker is he who made the heavens and the earth by his power and by his wisdom, verse 12. You remember whenever God put Job to the test asking him if he could match such wisdom and power? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And that quizzing continues on for 60 more verses. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as the present and delighted companion when God makes the heavens and the earth. When He established the heavens, I, wisdom, was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep. When He made firm the skies above. When He established the fountains of the deep. When He assigned the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress His command. When He marked out the fountains of the earth, then I was beside Him like a master workman. And I was daily His delight, rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world and delighting in the children of man." God enacts His unmatched wisdom by sheer fiat, by mere will, by simply speaking this immeasurable wisdom simply is. He creates by His unmatched wisdom and immeasurable power. He not only creates in power and with wisdom, He sustains the world. I believe that's exactly what you're meant to understand whenever you see that He's Lord of the storm in verse 13. He utters His voice. There's this tumult of of waters in the heavens. He makes mist rise from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth wind from His storehouses. That you are meant to think of God's sovereignty over all His creation here can be brought out in a couple of instances where the same illustration is used to make expressly that point. Psalm 135, 5-7. I know that Yahweh is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth wind from His storehouses. So you see how the point there is His lordship over everything, and then He uses the illustration of a storm to emphasize that. Reverse order happens in Psalm 29. So Psalm 135 moves from lordship to storm. Psalm 29, from storm to lordship. There, David wanting the angelic host to ascribe to Yahweh the greatness due His name, 
recalls Yahweh speaking over the waters. And this massive, violent storm arising over the sea and then moving over the forest mountains of Lebanon and snapping trees and then out into the wilderness. And having recalled this, in summary, he exclaims, Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. So the specific, he's enthroned over the flood. The general all-encompassing statement, he's enthroned as king forever. Because he's over the flood, you know this. He's over all. Hebrews 1.3 tells us Jesus upholds the world by the word of his power. All that you see is spoken. You are words. I am words. We walk on words. The words, the wise words, the powerful word of the God who speaks. Saints, Do not forget this distinction. Creation. Creator. Made. Maker. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that the folly of man is to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling Mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so lift your eyes to the heavens and see how small you are and how small the things of the earth are. Lift your eyes to the heavens and do not worship them because they are declaring the glory and the wisdom and the power of the Maker. All that was made will be unmade by the Maker. But those who trust in His Son will be made anew, a new creation. The final contrast that we have in verses 14 through 16 more heavily involves the worshipers. All humanity is indicted. As stupid and without knowledge. Every man is. Al Mohler says we are homo idolater. The creature who would fashion our own God. And again you see the same relationship between idol and idolater. You become, what, like, you become like what you worship. Every man is stupid and foolish. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. Because for his images are false, there's no breath in them, they're worthless, a work of delusion. Whenever these foolish idol worshippers are punished, these idols will perish. Verse 15. At the time of their, believe that's the every man, the goldsmith, at the time of their punishment, They, the idols, shall perish. Why? Because when you destroy the makers, the maid vanishes. 
They aren't there to keep putting the nails down anymore. No one's there to prop up Dagon anymore and superglue his head back on. He's forever manifestly, obviously demonstrated to be in his place, falling before Yahweh. In contrast to the worthless idols is Yahweh who is the portion of Jacob and who possesses Israel as the tribe of his inheritance. Have you noticed that there's an atmosphere of hope in this text that uh, we haven't been accustomed to recently in the book? It comes in the very beginning where Yahweh is speaking to His people, telling them not to learn the ways of the nations. There's a hope, there's an element of, of, of hope there that just hasn't been present recently. And it comes to the four here where we're told that Yahweh is the portion of Jacob. Israel is His inheritance. Yahweh is His portion, they are His. They are their beloveds. And their beloveds is theirs. Yahweh is the portion of His people. Let's talk about portion. Inheritance, lot, recalls the giving of the promised land and it being divided up according to, to Lot. And the big deal about the land wasn't the dirt. It was that God dwelt there with His people. He put it this way, that He made His name to dwell there among them. Whenever the land was divided up by lots, first by tribe, then by clans, and then by families, whenever that was done... There were some families that received a better portion, a more pleasant portion, a better lot. But yet every one of them that was born truly of the Spirit, every one of them that had experienced the circumcision of the heart, every one of them could sing with David. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines, the lines of my lot and inheritance, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Not only is Yahweh their portion, they are His. Israel is the tribe of His inheritance. Whereas Yahweh graciously gives Himself as the portion of His people, He by right and as His due takes Israel. As his inheritance. And this is precisely why they're not to fear. He instructed them through Moses in Deuteronomy 4. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that Yahweh spoke to you, out of, spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. 
Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. The likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bowed down to them and serve them. Things that Yahweh your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of His own inheritance as you are this day. The heavens were allotted to the nations as part of God's common grace to all men. Not to be worshipped, but as they declare His glory. All the nations enjoy that general revelation. But He has spoken and redeemed His people. That they would not learn those ways. But they would be His own possession and inheritance. He gives a temporal inheritance to the nations, but for His people... He takes them as His own forever. Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. You notice the contrast is between what He's given them and what He takes as His own. Because the one who formed all things gives Himself as our portion, takes us as His portion. And who can say which is the more pleasant of thoughts, really? Isn't this to say He's bound Himself to us in covenant love so that we can say, we are our beloved's and our beloved is ours? You remember in Psalm 73, when the psalmist looked out with envy on the wicked and their prosperity. What you're seeing there is that he's guilty of having learned the ways of the nations. Loving their idols. Because you see, idolatry not only fears, idolatry envies. The, the reason we envy is because we're worshiping the same God as the pagans and we're jealous that they enjoy the favor of their gods, whereas we don't. And so we envy. This gripped the psalmist until he went to the house of Yahweh and he saw considered the end of the wicked, that they perish along with all their stuff. And he turns from envy to praise, saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If Yahweh is your portion, you 
need no seconds. You're full, content, grateful, joyous. When you've truly banqueted at the table of the Lord, then you are liberated to laugh at this world when she tries to tempt you to taste the sweets of her idolatry. The idols have been mocked. This is the test. Can you laugh? Not the whimsical laugh of fools. Can you guffaw with Yahweh as He does at the nations when they come against Him and try to break away from His rule? In Psalm 2, we're told, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. So can you look at your idols and laugh at them, holding them in derision? You can laugh at the idols of others, yes. But can you laugh at the ones you've bowed down to? It's easy to laugh at Buddha or Allah. Can you laugh at the idols of sex, politics, leisure, sports, entertainment, luxury, travel, Family, success, intellect, nature, fashion, health, diet, exercise, self-righteousness. And if you found you've swallowed your laugh a bit, can you pull some nails? And can you push that idol down? Before the feet of the true and living God. And then beholding its severed head, its ridiculousness after the fact. Laugh at it in repentance and faith. If you want to identify your idol, what is that thing? And it is a thing, it's a created thing. What is that thing? That if it were to be pushed down in front of Yahweh put in its place, if it were to be tossed in a dumpster and lit on fire, what is that thing that would cause you grief and sadness? Many idols are good things that we've made God things. And Here's the test of such. Can you cut it off? A felled tree makes a horrible idol, but it's good for firewood. Can you burn it with gratitude unto the Lord, using it as it was purposed and intended? Have you received Yahweh's gifts from His hands with gratitude and joy and thanksgiving? Or have you made a God of them? Laugh at them as gods, and you can enjoy them as gifts. What is your Isaac? Can you take it up to Mount Carmel, plunge a knife in it, and light it on fire unto Yahweh? What is that thing that you cannot imagine living without? If you can live without your arm, you can keep it. But if you cannot imagine life without your arm, no, it's better 
to enter eternity with only one arm than having both to be thrown into a hell forever separated from the one who's truly worthy of all glory. So do you see your idols? Do you see how ridiculous they are? If Yahweh is your portion, if He's truly your portion, you can enjoy His good gifts and you have no need to make gods of them. They're put in their place beneath His feet to be enjoyed for His glory because there is none like Jesus. He is great and His name is great. Who will not fear Him? He is King of the nations. He is due all praise and all honor. He is the true God, the living God, the everlasting King. The earth quaked as He bore wrath in the stead of sinners. And it will quake again as He comes to pour out His wrath on sinners. He was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. All things were created through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. He upholds the world by the word of His power. He speaks now and His sheep follow. He will speak again and the goats will tremble. He is the portion of the saints. And they are His inheritance given to Him by His Father forever. His name, that name above all names at which all shall bow, His name is Jesus. Meaning, Yahweh saves. There is none like Him. Can you laugh? Let's pray. Father, may our joy in Christ be simultaneously a laughing at the idols. Fill us with the joy of the Lord. It is our strength. By it we combat and wage war, war against the follies of this world because Christ is our wisdom. And so magnify His name in your church, washing us with the water of your word, conforming us to His image, making us light and salt in a world of rot and darkness. For the glory of your name for the glory of the name of Christ, we ask this. Amen.